Well, good morning, church. Uh, first off, I want to dismiss the bridge kids. Uh, you can go with Miss Connie uh, and learn some more about prayer this week. So, as Brandon says, uh, we are in dire need of prayer. So, uh, well, last week, Brandon gave a kind of a state of the bridge address, if you want to call it that, just uh, really speaking about what God has done through the bridge and just God's faithfulness to the bridge. Um, and so what I kind of want to do this week is kind of do a state of the American church address. Um, and unfortunately, this is not as happy as the state of the bridge. Uh, I, am, I am so thankful, I am so glad that I do not see in the bridge what I see outside, uh, just in society and in so many of the churches around the U.S. that have really walked away from the gospel. Um, I'm glad that the bridge um, is doing very well, especially as a young church plant. I mean, to God be the glory for, for just everything, just, just our giving, uh, how many people we have here, all the service we've done. I mean, that is all God's working. And so praise be to him for that. But however, I'm grieved. I, 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 I'm, I'm just torn up inside. As I just look at the American church and, and just those who call themselves Christians, and, and maybe they are, maybe they're not, we don't know, but their actions really don't seem to line up with what's in the Bible. It's just, just a horrible witness to the rest of the world and, and to unbelievers. I'm grieved to the point that I feel like I have to say something. I, I, I can't just sit around and not speak to this evil that I see. And I, and I do this because I don't want to strain and becoming that as a church, but I also feel as a church that we can be the light, we can be the voice of reason in this time to show the world what true Christianity is, to show the world what God has really called his church to be, especially in times like these. So, I'm going to talk about some tough stuff today. And I may even say something that offends you. And so I'm just going to apologize. That, that's not my intention. All right? I, I do, I love each and every one of you in this room. And I want to, I want to spur us all on to righteousness. I want to spur us all on to be, become more fully devoted followers of Christ. And so if I do say something that offends you or you're unclear, and come talk to me about it. I'm open to that. I won't be offended at all. I, I know this is some tums, tough stuff. So hopefully you can see just, just how heavy my heart is right now. That I see so many Christians and acting in ways they should not. I am grieved that people's political alliances and their allegiance to their party is more important than their allegiance to their Lord and Savior. My heart is heavy with all the wickedness that I just see running around in today's society, both in the Christian and the non-Christian world. My heart is heavy that I don't see Christians standing up I don't see Christians calling out the truth. So today we're going to look back at uh, Micah 6 um, and some other scriptures to see how we can better understand just who God is and what it means for us as Christians and the church to live as, as God wants us to. Um, but before you all stand up for the reading, uh, I want to give a little bit of background information of the text so that we can understand really what's going on as we read through the text. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, he was prophesying in the land of Judah, um, which is part of the southern kingdom. As you can see on the, the screen up here, <laughs> it's the big part down there on the land. So this is the promised land. This is the land that God gave over to, to the nation of Israel. Um, and so all these different are the tribes, the different tribes of Israel. 
And pretty much at this point, all the other nations had fallen to Assyria already. Judah was the last stronghold. They were the last ones to kind of give into idolatry and give into all kinds of wickedness. Um, but they had. They had sold out and, and really started chasing after foreign gods um, at this time. Micah was preaching at the same time of Isaiah um, and, and preaching a very similar message. Um, one of the other things, though, that was going on in Judah is uh, Hezekiah was a good king, and he had kind of brought this revival back to Judah, but it was on a surface level. He, he reinstituted the practices of Israel with the temple and sacrifices and all that stuff, but people were just merely going through the motions. They, there was no heart in it. They didn't, they didn't get the bigger picture. And so, so on the surface, they looked all righteous because they were going to church. They were doing these sacrifices and stuff. But inside their heart, there was still wickedness and evil. Um, and it's because of that evil that God, for a long time, has been warning them that his wrath is coming. Um, and so... Uh, if you want to read more about like the times and the people, you can open up 1 Kings chapter 12, um, and that is the people that uh, Micah is addressing at that time. Um, so just two more disclaimers before we get down to business. Uh, first, I'm not implying, uh, nor do I believe, that America is the new Israel, or that America is a new promised land. Um, there's some people out there that wholeheartedly believe this, that, that America is God's chosen people, and that's just not true. Now, the church is God's chosen people. Believers in Christ all over the world are God's chosen people. They entered into that covenant relationship with God. But America, America never entered into a covenant relationship with God. People in America have. And a vast majority of people in America have, and, and praise be to God for that. But we cannot just take what happened to Israel and directly apply it uh, to America. Um, I do believe, though, that the principles and, and God's character and how he dealt um, with, with Israel, some of that stuff can be applied, and so that's what we're going to look, look at today. Because the hope is to learn more about God's character and uh, apply it to our, our current situation. Uh, secondly, this is not meant to be a political sermon. Um, I'm going to reference, though, some problems that I see in politics right now, um, and I see in some of our leaders. And, and I do this because, for one, it's wrong, and I, we have to call out wrong when we see wrong. But also, I think that they really do represent our hearts, and the people, uh, and I'm talking about the mass here. I'm not, I'm not specifically talking about the bridge. I'm talking about the mass. Um, I mean, hopefully, as you guys have known, as you study your Bible and you know about uh, Israel and the exile and the return and all that stuff, that God judged the nation of Israel for the multitudes of sins going on within the nation. There were still people inside the nation that never had bowed, bowed down to Baal and some of the other idols. And, and so my, my, my belief and my hope is that we at the bridge will be that remnant, that we will be the people who, um, who never give in to this, this wickedness and stuff like that. But at the same time, God judges the mass. And so that's why I'm speaking more to the American church than the bridge church here. But like I said, it's important for us to do that. So let's get into the word. If you'd, out of respect for God, please stand as we read Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictments of the Lord, and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God, God on high? 
Shall they come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries in this city, and it is sound wisdom to fear. Your name, hear the rod of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and your tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate among, or desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to, the, give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in the council that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing so that you shall bear the scorn of my people." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what we got going on in this passage is, is God's calling a hearing. Um, and he's calling this hearing for, for two reasons. First, he wants to show that he has done nothing wrong. That he has done nothing but love and care for Judah. And second, that Judah has ignored him and, and, and forgotten him and forgotten his commands and sinned against him. So in the first five verses, we have God speaking, and he's calling the mountains to be his witness, which kind of seems weird to us, uh, but God is doing this to prove his point. I mean, obviously dirt and rocks, they can't speak up, they can't testify. But he's calling them because those mountains have been there since God placed them there. They got to see the joy that God took in creation. They got to see God be pleased with his creation and rest on the seventh day. Those mountains also felt the wrath when God flooded the earth in the time of Noah. Those mountains were there long before the people that, uh, that God is addressing here. Those mountains were there when God brought those people into that promised land. And so... He's bringing these mountains in to testify against them because they've seen all that he's done to these people. And, and at first, we see God, he's, he's really pleading with his people. Um, why? Why have you forgotten me? Why have you stopped obeying my commands? Why, why, why have you started doing evil? And, and it's important for us to, to understand God's tone here. Because this is not an angry tone. It's not, come on, why have you done this? It's, it's more the tone of, of a hurt spouse or, or a hurt parent, right? I mean, we, we, we've seen this scene in movies and, and sitcoms, right? The teen girl, she comes home, she tells her parents she's pregnant, right? And the, and the mom, she's just, she's just sitting there. She really doesn't know the words to say. She's just, she's just so grieved. She's so confused. She's going, but, but we loved you. We, we, we taught you well. We, we never did evil to you. Why, why couldn't you believe us when we said to wait to marriage? Right? You, you, guys, you guys know the, the scene in the movie, right? But I want you to picture God at that. It's just this... Just loving, tender, broken God. Because I think this shows us something very important about the character of God. There's a lot of people, and myself included, grew up thinking this way, that God was an angry God. That as soon as we, get, we sinned, he would get mad at us and want to you know, strike us with lightning bolts. Or he'd hate us. Because I grew up in a very legalistic society, but... 
But understanding that God's first reaction to our sin, it, it's not anger. No, it, it, it's sadness. It, it's brokenness. He, he's grieved that we have sinned. I think this shows us just how hurt and sad in God is that when we forget about him and choose sin. He's grieved because he knows how truly bad sin is. He, he understands the consequences and the ramifications for sins far better than we ever could. He understands that because of our sin, we are separated from him and that we deserve death. And so that's why God is grieved. He knows how much sin hurts us. And this saddens God. And because his love is so great for us and because he has been so wonderful to us, he really can't understand how we could choose something as as vile, as sinister as sin over something that is so great and wonderful as God. And if we think about this, I, I don't know how I can do it, but I know I do. I know that I often choose sin over a great and loving Father. And so I, I know that God is saddened because of this. And to me, this, this just shows God's tenderness. Shows just how great his love is for us. This shows the truly amazing love and the desire that God has for us to worship him alone. Now don't worry. Doom and gloom, it's coming. And we'll read about that later. But then God moves on to make his case against his people, to remind his people just how faithful he has been to them. Uh, if we look in verse 4, right? God's not messing around. He, he goes straight to the big guns, right? Uh, remember how I brought you up out of Egypt. For the nation of Israel, this was the, the event. This was everything that they hinged their faith on. It was the fact that their God had brought them up out of slavery and established them as a nation. And I, I think we can understand that too as Christians, right? Because I know the most significant event in my life was when my Lord and Savior set me free from the power of sin. When he took me out of bondage where I had no choice but to obey sin, and he forgave me. And he established me. He made me a new creation. He brought me into his family. He said, I am your God. Right? And, and so, I get it. I get why he would bring this up to the Israelites because this is, a, this is a big event for them. And this should be a big event for us too to remember God's faithfulness all through the Bible as he chose people to worship him. And then our own salvation, our own getting set free from slavery to sin. And so then he continues, he talks about the good leaders that he had given them to direct them. He talked about how uh, this, this king wanted to do evil to them, and so he sends this, sends this guy to, to curse them, right? But when he's on his way, the donkey corrects the guy, and uh, he ends up blessing Israel instead of cursing the Israel. And so it's a really fascinating story, kind of reminds you of Shrek because there's a talkie donkey in it. So if you're not familiar with it, go ahead and read it. All right, it's an awesome, cool story. And side note, this is a great story to get your kids interested in the Bible because, you know, talking donkeys. <clears throat> so God reminds them all this stuff, and God reminds them then how he, he, he was the one that brought them into the promised land. Uh, the two cities that um, he names in verse 5, right? Remember what, what happened from, from Shittim to Gilgal, right? And so Shittim was the camp that they had. I'm not swearing. This was the camp that they had out before they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, all right? So this is the last place they were before they entered the Promised Land. And then Gilgal is the last place that they took over to secure the Promised Land. So God is reminding them of, once again, his faithfulness, bringing them up out of Egypt, giving them leaders, bringing them into the promised land. 
And I think God's reminding his people of his faithfulness to them for two reasons. He's doing it, uh, first off, to prove his court case that he really has done nothing wrong to these people of Israel. I mean, I'm sure at, at the time, they were just wondering, like, all right, God, we're your chosen people, and yet Assyria is kicking our butt right now and taking us captive. Like, what's going on? And so he's, he's doing it to say, this isn't my fault. Yes, I'm in control of this, but I'm not doing this because I hate you. I'm doing it because I love you. And he's justified in bringing this punishment to Israel because of their wickedness. And we got to remember that, that punishment is, may not be fun, but it is for our good. And this punishment is because he loves us, right? The New Testament talks about who says they love their child and yet doesn't discipline them, right? And that his discipline is proof of his love. And I think the second reason that God is reminding them of his faithfulness is to kind of prepare them a little bit. To remind them right before all this bad stuff happens, that he is the God that has done great things. And we have the privilege now of looking back on it and seeing that that is the case, right? Once again, a nation comes in, it takes them captive, takes them bondage. And yet God is faithful again, and he delivers them, and he brings them back to the promised land. And so I think, just subconsciously, God is almost reminding the people of Israel, I'm faithful. Hold on to that as you go through this rough time. Hold on to my faithfulness because I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And ultimately, God's doing all this to help his people. And, you know, as Brandon talked about wonderfully last week, God has been so faithful to the bridge. And so let us not forget that. Let's remember all the good that God has done to the bridge and also what good God has done to each and every one of you. The fact that you woke up this morning, the fact that we have jobs, the fact that we're mostly healthy, we're cancer-free, all, all these things, remember the goodness that God has done for you. Remember that and hold on to that. Remember that and, and look to God in these hard times, but also remember that and seek after God. Don't forget about God and pursue evil. So the next section of this is, is kind of verses 6 through 8, and 6 through 7 um, is really the prophet Micah speaking on behalf of the people. As we talked about, Hezekiah brought all these reforms to try and, and to bring a revival to the people so that they would follow God. Um, but it was just merely the motions, right? And so, so this is why Micah is kind of um, using sarcasm and just just exaggerating, like, what do you want us to do, God? Kill like 10 million rams and just have rivers of, you know, other, of olive oil, which was a sacrifice back then? I mean, he even gets so ridiculous to say, what do you want us to do, God? Kill our own kids? And, and Micah's asking all this stuff because he knows that's not the answer. He, he's doing this to show the ridiculousness of this. And then he gets to the real heart, what God really wants in Micah 6, 8. And we're going to talk so much about that later on in the application part that I'm going to kind of skip over it um, and get to, well, why is God bringing this judgment upon the nation of Israel, all right? So uh, this is kind of verses 10, to, well, verses 9 uh, to the end, uh, 16 here. And pretty much what God is speaking out against is the fact that where everywhere he looks in the land, there's wickedness, there's evil. People are cheating each other, right? They're using dishonest scales, they're using dishonest weights. So they're, they're selling somebody a pound of flour, and when they weigh it on the scale, they only got like a seven-eighths pound weight, right? So they're charging the full dollar, but they're not given, or they're charging for the full pound, but they're not giving the full pound to the people. Or when they were buying it, right, they'd use a heavier weight. So they'd be buying, paying for a pound of wheat when they were really getting a pound and a half of wheat. Um, 
And so, so there's that. There was people that were just, just being greedy. They were just saving all their money. They are doing whatever they could to get money. didn't matter whether it was dishonest, honest, who they cheated. They were doing it to get money. And then they were just keeping that money. They were storing that money up so that they could live this really lavish lifestyle. And while this is going on, people all around them are dying of starvation. Sound familiar? And also it talks about the, these two leaders that they were following. And they, they accepted their ways over God's ways. And they were doing the evil practice of them by worshiping other gods. And, and, and even though it was legal, right, to do this thing by this king, they knew it was illegal in God's kingdom. But that didn't matter to them. They chose to follow the evil leaders. We find out from other passages that they were worshiping other gods. The leaders and judges were taking bribes, perverting justice. I mean, just any kind of wickedness you could imagine, they were doing. And they had forgotten God. They had forgotten the God who loved him, saved them, and told them how to live. And so church, this is why my heart is heavy. Because I feel like today, our society is facing the exact same problems as the nation of Israel were. Might look a little different, but it's still the same. I mean, turn on the television. Listen to advertising slogans. Just watch people. Listen to people talk. See what people post on their Facebooks about what they've done. Look at our political leaders, both locally and nationally. I mean, if you turn on the TV and watch almost any show, you will see just the normalizing of immoral behavior. Sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, greed, vanity, disobeying your parents, idolatry. I mean, it's so prevalent in everything that is out there that I think we become callous to it and we don't even notice it. And I wish I could say that this stuff was just in like adult sitcoms, but it's not. So many of the cartoons and just teen shows put out there today, all about you, baby. You get what you want, you do what you want, you have fun, your parents are stupid, they don't know anything. These are all lies that the devil is just bombarding us all with. You see the promotion of hedonism everywhere. Hedonism is this philosophy, this slogan that if it feels good, do it. It's all about pleasure. And even though we don't necessarily say, oh yeah, that's what we're about, our actions speak something totally different as a society. I mean, just, just look at our slogans, right? Have it your way. This bud's for you. YOLO! Which was a license to do whatever you wanted, because, hey, you know, you only live once. YouTube, social media, it, it vomits out just this stupidity. Things that people are doing to really glorify themselves and to gain popularity and, and gain fame, right? And then people watch it and go, oh, that's cool, I got to do that. Or I got to beat that so that I can be cool, I can be more, Right? And we're doing all this to make ourselves famous, to bring ourselves glory, instead of the only one who's worthy of glory. And, and these behaviors, these just low state of character in people, and, and the priorities of America, I think really became evident in this past election. I mean, look at the two candidates that were running for president. They were both, and let me repeat that, both candidates were and are immoral people that care nothing about the rules, worship, or the glory of our great God and Savior. Like I stated earlier, this is not meant to be a political sermon, but I have to address these injustices I have to address this evil that I see. 
because the things that are so ungodly helped win the presidency for Donald Trump. And I think they just reflect how wicked and how lost we are as a society. The fact that a man stood before us and spewed nothing but hate for others and pride in himself out of his mouth for a year and was supported mostly by Christians, it frightens me. And it reveals what's hiding in our hearts. I mean, I, I, I literally cringed on election night as the news just kept going. Yep, the white evangelical male came out today and he voiced his opinion. The white evangelical male won this election for Trump. As a white evangelical male, I don't stand with those people. I don't stand with the evil that that man speaks. The problem is that he really didn't provide any solutions to the problems. He just created a bunch of scapegoats. He just took a bunch of lies that he knew people would believe and said, oh, it's their fault. Oh, that people group over there. He was dehumanizing people who were created in the image of God just as you and me. The fact that the man is so devoid of any real character in any area of his life and that we voted for him shows me that as a whole we don't value the things that God values. The fact that he said that he never asked God for forgiveness because he doesn't need it, because he's never done anything that would warrant asking God for forgiveness, that frightens me. Worry all of us. And I'm not saying this to beat him up, or I'm not saying this to say, oh, I wish Clinton would have won. Because I think I'd be standing up here saying the exact same things if Clinton had won. Because they were both just evil, vile people. And I think most of the people around the country that are protesting, they're not protesting because Trump won and Hillary lost. They're protesting because they actually care and stand up for refugees and minorities and women. They're not crying because they lost an election. They're crying because they see injustice and they're standing up for it. I'm really saying all this stuff more to beat up the American church. Like Israel, we have gone so far astray We've turned our backs on the things that God cares about. We've started worshiping money and other idols. I'm disgusted by all the memes I see on Facebook from Christians talking about God moving back into the White House or God help, the most ridiculous one, God holding Donald Trump's hand as he signs these executive orders into place. You know what? I'm pretty sure God's abhorred by most of what has been signed into place by Trump this far. And the one good thing of stopping money to foreign abortion does not wash away all the other mistreatment of people created in God's image. And I point all this out because of or my hope and what I've been praying for all week is that you have not stopped listening to me by this point that you don't hear these things and think, oh, he's un-American. Because I love this country. And I do pray for our president. I pray that he will see his sinfulness, that he will repent, and that he will turn to God and receive salvation. I pray that we, as a nation, will see this evilness and we will do an about-face. I pray that we will not be like the nation of Israel and just ignore it until we cannot ignore it anymore and we're destroyed. I, this is me speaking, and probably not the word of the Lord, but I fully believe that Donald Trump is part of the judgment that God is bringing on this nation to help us see it. Just like if Hillary Clinton was president, she would have been part of the punishment 
that God was bringing. Because God's saying, wake up. I love you. I died for you. I sent my son to save you. I've showed you what is good. I've showed you how to live. And you've forgotten it all. You've gone chasing after other gods. But since this problem that we're facing, I think, is very similar to the one that Israel faced, I believe the solution is the same as well. So we're going to dive into Micah 6.8 to find that solution. And there are three big things that God really wants from his people. To seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with their God. This, this is what God truly wants. He doesn't want our sacrifice. He doesn't want our going to church and looking religious. He doesn't want rituals. He wants our hearts. He wants us to be fully surrendered and devoted to him. That's what he created us for. That's what he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us for. I mean, Jesus spent a lot of his ministry criticizing the Pharisees for this looking religious with their heart being far from God. God. God wants our actions to flow out of our heart and our love for him. He wants our love. He wants our obedience. So what does it look like to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is how the Bible puts it, right? Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident evil, the fatherless and the widow, Excuse me. nor shed innocent blood in this place. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. See, pursuing justice means, to up, first off, to uphold what is righteous according to God's standard. This usually comes with sacrifice to our will and our desires. Ultimately, we must choose God's will over our will. So practically, what does this look like for us? Well, I think it means two things. First, in our actions. Let our actions be righteous. Let us treat people with dignity. Let us treat people fairly. Let us not judge people by the color of their skin or their social status or their clothes that they wear or how bad they smell or how well they speak. But let us treat everybody as they are, image bearers of the Most High God, who God created and put here on earth to glorify him, just the same as he put me and you here. And we've talked a lot about this at this church because we seek to develop fully devoted followers of Christ in a multi-ethnic context, right? So we've talked about this. But are we doing it? The second thing that we can do to seek justice is when we see injustice, address it. The Bible talks all about plead the case of the widow. Speak up for those who have no voice. Fight for the poor. Fight for the needy. This might mean that we, we go join one of those civil marches that's taken place this last week, right? To bring attention to these injustices. To say, hey, this is wrong. We don't support this. We don't want this. Maybe you need to write your senator. Maybe you need to call your congressman. And say, you know what? I don't support this ban on refugees. I don't want to build a wall between Mexico. Call them and say, this is not right. Governor Brownback, fund our schools. Our kids need to learn. Maybe it just means when you're sitting in the break room or having lunch with someone and they're telling a racist joke or they're complaining about, oh, those stinking lazy people on welfare. Right? That's why they're out there riding, because they don't have a job. Ha, 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 ha. 
Confront that ignorance. Speak up to those people. Say, you know what? Not to be mean to you, but where are your facts? Do you know any of those people? Of course they'll say, oh yeah, I got a black friend. No. It's not enough. See, these, these, what these people are living off and basing their lives off are stereotypes, which are lies, half-truths, twisted stories that we've been told about certain groups of people. But they're just not true. These are they're lies. They're ignorance. These are hate. These are things that we use to justify our discrimination of other people. As Christians, we can't. We can't stand with lies. We can't stand with hate. We can't justify hate against people. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, it's okay to hate someone because of... No. It says, love others as you love yourself. Love others as Christ has loved you. I think the, the best way to get rid of these stereotypes is relationship. Get to know people that look different than you. Get to know people that grew up differently than you. Get to know people that have less money than you and have more money than you. Get to know them. Listen to their stories. Pray with them. Hear their heart. And listen to understand who they are and why they think the way that they think. Don't just listen to them so that you can respond to them. Don't, don't listen to them so that you can prove them wrong. Listen to them to understand. Because I know in my life, I don't see the whole picture many times. I just see my perspective. And so when I get to know somebody else and I understand their perspective, and when I'm living and walking alongside of them, I understand why they're marching in the streets and saying black lives matter. I understand that they're saying we get treated different. We get treated differently by police. I understand that women get treated differently in the workplace. Why? Because I've walked alongside these people. These people have become my friends. So, so these relationships, they, they want to inform our minds so that we can get rid of those stereotypes and we can start to speak truth to people espousing those stereotypes. But I also find it very hard not to speak up against injustice when it affects somebody that I care about. My wife's a teacher. Many of you in this church are teachers. So the fact that what teachers get paid and all the funding cuts that Brownback has done, that affects me personally. That's why I care about that stuff. I have many, many black friends, so that's why I can stand with the Black Life Matters people. Don't fully support what the official Black Life Matters stands for, but I can say that black lives do not get treated equally as white lives in America. And so, church, especially since that's our goal, is to be multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-socioeconomical, we have to be brave enough and willing to go find friends that look different than us and understand their stories so that we can be informed, so that when a law is passed that discriminates against someone, we'll actually care enough to say, that's wrong, because we'll understand it because it will affect us. The second way to turn the church around is to love mercy or kindness. This means to have compassion on everybody. To show the love that Christ has showed us by giving his life up for everybody. Leviticus 19 33-34 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him harm. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 1 John 3.17 goes on to say, By this we know love, 
that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the, the, word, the world's good, well, sorry, my eyes are still going bad. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love abide in him? So to love mercy means that we love people how God loves us. It means that we put others first, just as God put us first, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for our sins. It means that we seek the welfare of other people. To love mercy means that we show the gospel to people through our actions, through our words. To love mercy means that we tell others about the great mercy shown to us by God our Savior. So practically, right? Love mercy can be as simple as feeding the poor, adopting a child, saying kind words to a stranger, buying someone's meal at the restaurant, overlooking an offense like the person who cut you off on your way to church today, just as Christ has overlooked so many of ours. Mercy may mean taking in a refugee from another country and helping them learn how to live here. Folks, there's a ton of refugees within walking distance of this church who would love to practice their English with you, who would love to share a meal with you. I don't know if you ever had African food. It is delicious, wonderful. Or maybe just go and play soccer in the streets with their kids. I think it's a very special thing that God is bringing all these people to us to hear the gospel. We don't have to get up and give up all of our comforts of life to go to a third world country to tell people about Jesus. We just have to walk out our front door. It's pretty awesome. And all the refugees I know, they're not violent people. They're not coming here trying to sneak people in to ruin America. And the vetting process to make sure that they're safe is super intensive. So let the refugees in. Let them come here so that we can show them the love of Christ. Let them come here so that they know who God is. So they can say, God delivered me up out of the land of Syria or wherever, and he brought me to America where I met my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. The last thing God requires of us is to walk humbly with him. Now, we all know that the opposite of humility is pride. Pride is thinking too much of ourselves. And when I say that, it, it can show itself in two ways, right? Either I can think too much of myself and be like, oh, look how great I am. Or I can say, look at me, look how wretched I am, right? Both of them are focusing people on us. Both of them are trying to get people to look at us and not look at God. And so, to walk humbly with God means that we fully understand who we are. We understand who God has created us to be. We, we, we have a proper understanding of who we are. We don't think too much. We don't think too little. And so how this, this manifests itself, how this looks in our lives, is that we understand that God is above us, that God is greater than us, that God is more powerful than us. And so we submit to God. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. We see that he, he's the real deal, he's everything, and that we are to serve him. And so we just walk in obedience to God. And we don't focus on us. We, we always give the praise to God, the glory to God, pushing people to him. So, like I said, church, this is not a fun sermon to preach. This is not a, I've been dreading this all week. But yet, as I read my Bible, as I see how wicked of a times we live in, I understand that God's judgment's coming. And, and whether that's a special judgment for God's people right now, or it's the final judgment, I don't know. 
But I can tell you this. The time is now, church. The time to seek justice, the time to love mercy, the time to walk humbly with our God is now. Because Jesus is closer now to returning than he ever has been in the history of the world. And it will be closer yet tomorrow, if tomorrow comes. So church, today, let us turn from our wickedness, let us turn from our evil, and let us follow God. Let us seek, let us pursue the things that God wants, that God cares about. Church, you may stand, I'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you so much for your great mercy. We thank you so much for your justice. We thank you so much that you love us, that you forgave us, that you delivered us out of slavery. Father, may we not forget your faithfulness. May we not forget your righteous decrees. May we not forget your character. Father, may we not be silent anymore. May we be your light. May we be your love. May we be your ambassadors to this broken world that so desperately needs to feel your love. May our allegiance to you be stronger than our allegiance to our political party. May our Love for you be greater than the love for the wisdom of this world. Father, have mercy on us. Turn our hearts, turn this, this nation, turn the American church's heart back to you. I pray that it's not too late, Lord. I pray that we may do an about face, that we may repent of our sins, that we may love mercy that we may seek justice, and that we may humbly walk with you, God. In your wonderful and glorious name, amen. You're dismissed.